Lead from the Side is made in partnership with Performance Leadership, a co-venture of Western Bulldogs and Victoria University. Hi, I'm Spencer Casimir, and this is Lead from the Side. Today's guest is Simon Johnson. He's currently the non-executive chair of the Rugby Football League, one of the top five sports in the UK, and non-executive chair of SIS, a multi-channel supplier of live betting services to leisure operators globally. In his extensive career, he has also been director of corporate affairs at the FA, COO of England 2018, and board member at Swim England. But this is just a fraction of his story. His company, SJRB, provides consultancy and advisory services to charities and companies in the leisure sector. He also provides career and business development mentoring services. Simon started his career as a lawyer. His executive career saw him in senior positions at ITV, the Premier League, the Football Association, and as chief executive of the Jewish Leadership Council. In the charitable sector, he is the chair-elect at Camp Simcha and trustee of the Bloom Foundation and advises a number of charities on governance and strategy. Simon writes extensively, providing thought leadership on the sport and leisure industries and charitable third sector. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Spencer. So obviously we're covering some distance here and being a longtime supporter of the RFL, it'd be great to see your insights on the game as it is now and where it's headed. Someone with an American accent who lives in Australia talking so passionately about rugby league is uh, is great for us. As you said in your introduction, rugby league is a game with a tremendous heritage. And over the history of the rugby league, it's ebbed and flowed along with the social development of England and the United Kingdom. And where we find ourselves now is that I think rugby league in England is very, very proud of its heritage. It's proud of the character that its foundation gave to it. But we're in a very bright and exciting future. Um, We've innovated now in creating a way of governing the sport that has all of the commercial exploitation set off into a separate side business, a side joint venture, which allows the revenue that is earned from exploitation of all of the assets to benefit the whole of the game. And finally, we've we've entered into a long-term partnership with an international rights and media agency, IMG Endeavour. And they're alongside us helping to really exploit the, the exciting opportunities that I think the modern digital uh, environment creates. Coming to Rugby League on late night TV, it's very easy for somebody who's familiar with gridiron football to quickly understand and pick up the rules of rugby league, yet we haven't seen the same growth in rugby league in the United States and Canada um, that we've seen in terms of the headway that rugby union has made. Are there futures? I mean, IMG is clearly linked with the US. Is there a vision for growing the game in that capacity? I think we are trying to grow um, rugby league wherever we can. The advantage, I think, of rugby league is the sheer athleticism of and, and skill of the athletes and the fact that they don't have any padding on them of course is the the biggest difference and to the extent that you know if you were a us based sports fan and you were shown a number of sports alongside and said pick the one that you would like to follow now i am sure that the majority of people would follow rugby league i think it is a better game a faster game i think one of the problems that we've had is that as a game internationally we've been under resourced compared to others and so we're looking to see if we can develop the resource ourselves to be able to invest into growth areas of which the United United States is one. Rugby league has played all over the world. And I think that we could benefit from investment and growth in many of those countries. My father 
visited Melbourne. And when we went to the rugby league match here, his first takeaway was, wow, the ball stays in play. Essentially, somebody who is not familiar at all with the sport or any of these sports, it's very easy to follow. When I say that the the sport is the athleticism and the fast pace of it, a lot of that is that when the ball goes out of play, it quickly comes back. There's very few other games are like that. I think the advantage, the excitement of rugby league is that the ball is in play for longer and therefore it's a it's a more all-action game. And that leads, I think, to the really incredible athleticism, which I think is really underappreciated in the world of sport. I referee and I'm puffed. That's all I can say. I'm not surprised. I think it's a very, it's a very hard job. I'd never give it up. Uh, but for uh, physical decline, as we all do with age, <laughs> when we look at the history of rugby league, a big part of it genuinely has been how it's not rugby union. Does the sharing of the name rugby between union and league act as an asset or as a detriment to rugby league? It's an interesting question, Spencer. I don't think I've ever thought about it because I think it's neutral. It's taken as it is. You know, we are rugby league, they're rugby union. And yes, it means that if I talk to somebody for the first time, they have I have to explain the difference. Um, and rugby league's um, leaders have over the years created that game and created a, a distinction between rugby union, in my view, for the better, that is faster, that is more enjoyable. And I think over time, there is an interesting discussion to be had. The, the, the drive to make the game as safe as possible from a perspective of brain injury and, uh, and risk of concussive injuries and subconcussive injuries. I have a sense that rugby union is going to have to make more changes to its rules than rugby league is. And some of those changes may end up bringing the game closer in the way it looks to rugby league. We all have to look at the way that players tackle. But rugby union does have a couple of areas of higher risk, as I see it. The scrum itself, it's contested. The ruck and the maul. And then the interesting debate becomes the number of players on the field. I mean, the field is broadly the same size. With 15 players on the field, it's now quite crowded. Some people say that rugby league is quite crowded as well with 13 as well. It means that, uh, you know, the risks of collision are higher and higher. But for me, the, 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 the distinction remains the athleticism and skill level of the players that is what sets rugby league apart uh, from the other sports that you've mentioned. And for those that are interested, Tony Collins has a wonderful show, Rugby Reloaded, where he actually goes through those changes. Yeah. But we have to shift gears. This is a leadership show. So how did the way you lead change from the first time you were given that role to be a leader in this world to what you do now? I don't think my leadership style has changed fundamentally from when I was very young. I was involved in Jewish youth movements when I was younger, and they were based around leadership. Um, and I was able to learn a little bit about leadership there. And I think I learned a number of principles that I, I wrote about recently. I believe that good leaders lead by consent. You have to have the consent of those people who are your stakeholders. I think I knew this from the start, but I really experienced it when I was um, in a, a senior executive position at the English Football Association. And we got a lot of criticism. People would say, well, who appointed you and who do you think you are and why are you the governing body and why do you know any more than we do? I think that people will tolerate their leaders when they consent to what it is that they're doing. Now, that isn't always making decisions in the right way, although that helps. 
I think a lot of it is about your own style. I think it is about your own personal characteristics and it's about the way that you undertake your role. So for me, it's all about integrity. It's all about being honest. It's about being open. It's about being transparent. It's about being available to people and understanding that although I have the responsibility to make decisions and lead decisions that the board takes, other people might take different decisions. So that doesn't mean that I'm right and they're wrong. It means that I happen to have the leadership role that means that I can take the decision. So I'm always happy to be accountable for the decisions that we take and explain why we've done it. Uh, and then as, as a final point, I think that a leader has to not give the impression that they perceive themselves to be more important than they are. You have to be authentic. You have to be yourself. You have to therefore show and reveal your own values. And therefore, that means you're kind at times. If you are willing to take criticism, willing to listen to other people's views, willing to explain your own decisions and show that you are not a leader for leadership's sake, but you are a steward of the sport who happens to be in that role for a period of time and your job is to hand it on to whoever comes after you. I think that is a right way to do it. If you're looking to level up your ability to lead and inspire others, then performance leadership is the course for you. Performance leadership is a unique and exciting professional development course delivered in partnership with Western Bulldogs and Victoria University. The two-day course focuses on practical learning with a range of facilitated activities. Learning is complemented by high-performance sport insights from a range of Western Bulldogs guest speakers and senior industry leaders. Join like-minded professionals at Performance Leadership in Melbourne this October. To find out more, visit education.westernbulldogs.com.au. People constantly talk about being accountable, but you also have to be able to provide explanations, not just answers, for why a certain decision was made throughout the entire process. When you're in a position like this, and particularly if you make the decision to be visible on social media so that you can be open and, and transparent, people will come at you. And what I try to do is I try to engage with people. I don't mind criticism. What I try and challenge is what I call ignorant criticism, just criticizing for the sake of criticizing. If, having heard my explanation, they still think it's the wrong decision, and they still think I'm deserving of being called all the names under the sun, then fine, I can respect that. But I do feel it's important to explain what we do. And so when I became chair of the RFL, I made a commitment that I would be more open and transparent. We published very quickly to our stakeholders a summary of our board meetings. We now put the minutes of our board meetings on our website. In the modern world, which is so open uh, with social media, I think you have to be willing to spend time, more time than you would be comfortable with, but time explaining why you've taken a particular decision. Now, in terms of innovating styles, tell us a story about a time where there was stagnancy in your work and you had to lead people to innovate. Innovate means to do something brand new. And I, I can't think of many things that I've done that are literally brand new. But what I think I've done is helped to create a new governance structure in rugby league at the moment. I think it's one of the things that I am quite proud of. The RFL governed the growth of the sport. But the top clubs, the Super League, they had their own governance structure um, separated out to give themselves more authority and more power. I think it was clear over the pandemic with the difficulties that that created, that that sort of bicameral governance structure was not working. Once we um, had agreement with them, we were able to create 
rugby league commercial, a commercial venture that looks after all of the assets of the sport. And then that entity entered into its long-term agreement with IMG. Now, it needed a lot of agreement for a lot of people. When we put those two decisions to the council of the rugby league, we got unanimous approval in both cases. That for me was quite an achievement because it meant that we had managed to carry the sport from A to B and we brought everybody along with us. So I was able to apply my leadership style to my stakeholders. My colleagues in the Super League clubs used a series of different leadership styles. The the structure that we now have, I think it's a model that others will look at and I'm hopeful that it'll generate the commercial success and the growth opportunities that we all thought um, that we would when we set it up. We haven't seen something like that in English Rugby League, let's just politely say, for a very long time. You, you probably haven't seen it in many other sports, actually. Therefore, in that respect, it's quite a bold decision. And when I talked, therefore, at the beginning about Rugby League innovating, I think we're not afraid to take bold steps. When the leaders of the Super League decided to move the sport from a winter sport to a summer sport, I mean, that was a very, very bold decision. It might not have worked. It so happens that it has. And we now play on exactly the same calendar as Australia. And for me, I think that was an example of a decision where you do something bold because you believe that it's the right thing to do. You make a decision, you go all in with it. I think that's what we've done with setting up this structure. We're going all in. There has to be those tough conversations as well. What's your approach when you have to speak with somebody, whether one-on-one or to a group, about those tough decisions, those tough changes? You've got to understand that people are human beings, and therefore they have feelings as human beings. People have their own perception of their own importance or power or influence as compared to somebody else. And it's really, really important, therefore, if you are trying to influence people is to sit down and understand what motivates them, where they are, what's important to them, what's less important to them. You can understand on a human level, what are the buttons that you should press? What are the buttons you shouldn't press? What are the things that you might be able to move people on? And if you can maintain all of that and enable people to come out of a negotiation feeling that, yep, they are comfortable with with the outcome, that they've got something that they want, they've had to give some things that they haven't, I think that's the ideal way to do it. I think that's why it took us a long time to agree the change in the restructure, because it took a long time to move people. And that involved, I think, a process where you had to build trust so that if you sat across the table and said, you know what, I can't agree to that, but I could agree to this. They trusted that you were doing it from a good place and for the good reasons and that we're all out to achieve the same objective. As I say, it's all about showing myself and my own authenticity and my own integrity and my own values and hoping that those are means of trying to you know, get people to come to decisions uh, that I need them to. Some of our most valuable lessons aren't the successes we've had, but also the failures. What was your biggest failure that you felt you learned and got the most out of? Well, the biggest failure by some margin was England's failure to succeed in the FIFA World Cup bid in 2018. I mean, I was a senior member of that team and um, that particular failure, and it was really quite substantial. We only got two votes. It was very, very difficult to take. We'd worked on it for two years. We were convinced that what we had was enough, it was right, and the whole country was behind us. I think what that taught me was really about resilience, that things that go wrong are not necessarily a reflection on you. 
there could be other factors that have led to it. And you have to understand what those other factors were, because I think we understood that we were comfortable that we had done everything that we could. We'd done it in the right way. We could look ourselves in the mirror and say that there was nothing that we had done that we should have done differently. That taught me, I think, you know, when you make a decision, be proud of it. Understand you could have done something differently that might have had a different outcome, but don't ever regret what you've done. And, and I think that that was a very valuable lesson. How old was I? I was in my 40s when that happened. But I think the fact that we went through it has really given me a lot more inner strength than I felt I had. I can take a lot more criticism now than I think I ever could before that. We'll always have some sadness and some regret that it didn't end up better or differently, but we can still own it and say we did our best at that time. Sports people, I think, are really good at this, encapsulating in a short moment what I've just talked about. If a player in a big match misses a very simple forehand with an open court and knocks it out, if they dwell on that decision, they'll lose the next three or four points as well. If a quarterback misses a wide open receiver that would have gone for a touchdown, again, if they dwell on that decision, the next five things that they do will also be wrong. Elite sports athletes are able to quickly forget and I think that's a really important lesson for leaders in business and in sport and elsewhere. You make your decisions based on what you felt, the information you had in front of you at the time. If it turned out to not be right, on to the next, learn what you can so that the next time you take a decision, you've got more information to help you to make a better decision. I think there's an element where, and I'd love to know your opinion on this, where people have to be able to also forgive themselves for making the wrong choice. Yes, you'll regret it sometimes and you'll dwell on it, but not for too long. I think it's all about making the very best decision you can and being comfortable that you've done that, but also accepting that it could be different some other time. Those things are all very important. It builds resilience. I think it makes you human. I think there is no problem with, at times, if something's happened, understanding that that turned out to be the wrong thing to do and therefore go and try and sort it out. I think life gives you the opportunity to learn from every situation that you're in, from every person that you meet, from every mistake you make, from everything that you do right. Sometimes you'd have to just make an instinctive decision, a gut decision. When that happens, you're hoping that all your experience that has led up to that enables you to make the right decision when you just have to say, you know what, let's do this. I think as you get older, you should become a better leader as you go. What's a piece of advice that you wish you had someone give you earlier in your career, or maybe something that you know now that you wish you knew sooner? When I give advice to young people at the moment, I always say, things don't necessarily always go to plan. Try and learn from everything. Try and in every situation you're in, in every job that you're in, try and learn as much as you can. So that if, for example, you get sacked, you don't mope on the fact that you're now out of a job, but you move to somewhere thinking, I am a better person now because of everything I've learned and experienced in that role. And I think it's that ability to deal with setbacks and develop resilience that uh, I had to learn quite late in life. Do you feel it would have been any different or how would it have been different if you had those setbacks earlier? I might not have tried certain things. I have a certain amount of self-confidence that allows me to go for positions and seek to achieve things. Had I probably experienced setbacks, I might have been a little bit more reticent. You know, but for me to put myself forward to be chair of the rugby league, you know, there's an element of imposter syndrome that can inflict people when you go for a leadership position. But I think there you have to have the inner confidence to feel, yep, I feel I have the skills and the attributes and the experience that at this particular time might make me an interesting candidate for that particular role. I think it's also recognizing that timing is everything and timing is out of your control. 
That doesn't make me a worse person. It just means that the circumstances are different. Timing is a bit of luck, and you've got to try and use that to your advantage. I'm really glad that you brought up imposter syndrome, and it's something that many people and many leaders also feel. Is there any way that you manage that or continue to manage that if you still have it when that feeling occurs? I'm going to give an answer that I gave to somebody that I'm mentoring who holds a leadership position within the Jewish community, is a young person. And I said, you have to stop being amazed that you have this role. You have it because you deserve it. And if you spend your whole time thinking, isn't it wonderful how far I've come and where I am, you're going to miss out the opportunity. This person has a fixed term in this leadership role. Get on and and do it now. You have to understand, some people appointed you. They did that for a reason. Now, fulfill the trust that they've placed in you. Very well said. And it's a fantastic way to wrap the show. Simon, thank you so much for making the time to share what is genuinely a very personal experience that you've lived. I I enjoy talking about these things. I think it's very important. I do believe that leaders need to be genuine and authentic in themselves. And uh, that's why I've, I've felt quite happy to share my thoughts now. You can follow Simon and the organizations he's currently involved with at SJRB Simon, as well as at the RFL and at SISLTD. Thanks for listening today, and thanks to our sponsors. More information about the show and our guests can be found in the show notes. You can follow the show on Twitter or LinkedIn at Lead from the Side, or myself on Twitter or LinkedIn at Balls Out PhD. If you want to contribute to the show, send us an email at leadfromtheside at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. See you next time, and remember to lead from the side. <laughs>